0: The rest of you will take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter. Pygmalion and Gollum, two mythological characters. Pygmalion, uh, Pygmalion, uh, a mythical character from Greek mythology, uh, was a sculptor. Couldn't find a woman that he was interested in, and so he carved a woman for himself, sculpted a woman out of ivory, and he fell in love with that statue. And the wish of his heart was that he could, quote, find a wife, the living likeness of my ivory doll. And so he wished for it, and he wished for it, and as the myth goes, the statue became what Pygmalion wanted her to be. She came to life, and Pygmalion married her. Gollum, a Jewish mythological character. He was a clay figure, and he was brought to life by Rabbi Lowe to protect the Jews of Prague. But things went south in a hurry with Gollum. He became bad, very, very bad. And Gollum had to be destroyed. Now, both of these mythological characters have a psychological phenomenon named after them. You've heard of the Pygmalion effect, whereby the greater expectation placed on people, the better they perform. People become what you believe them to be or expect them to be. The Gollum effect is the opposite. Uh, Lower expectations placed upon people by those over them or by the person themselves lowers their performance. It's difficult to prove scientifically whether either one of these, the Pygmalion effect or the Gollum effect, uh, are are really valid or not, but it does seem that people act and behave according to what others believe about them and expect from them. And that makes me wonder. makes me wonder why God speaks such wonderful, beautiful truths to his people about what he thinks about us. Why does he want us to know this truth, what he thinks about us? Is there something that he expects from you and me? Because if the Pygmalion effect is for real, if it really works, then given what God tells us to be true, about what he thinks about us and how he views us, then you and I ought to be out there confidently, boldly changing the world. Really. I hope we'll see that this morning as we come again to Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm going to ask you to stand if you have your Bibles open as we hear read together the word of the living God. Beginning in verse 6. This is the word of the Lord, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand. And redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. Let's pray together. Father, we ask uh, once again for uh, you to be faithful to your promise, uh, that you would bless the reading and hearing of your Holy Word. Father, we pray that you would bring about the change and the transformation that needs to take place in our hearts and lives, to be the people you've called us to be, the people that you expect us to be, the people that you empower us to be. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You Be seated. I don't know if you caught your identity as we read these verses for the first time, but I want to list them for you again. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. You are his treasured possession. The Lord sets his affection on you because he loves you. This is who God says we are. When we have faith in Christ, why does God tell us these wonderful, beautiful things? So we'll focus more on ourselves. So we'll pat ourselves on our backs so that we will become intoxicated with our greatness Or is it possible that God tells us these truths so that we will actually think about ourselves less? I wonder how much free time you and I would discover in our lives if we stopped thinking so much about ourselves. Building up a low self-image, bringing down a self-image that's a little too high. Worrying about what others think about us and our performance. I wonder if God just tells us plainly here to settle the matter. This is who you are so we can get on to better things. I wonder if he tells us who we are to to transport us beyond ourselves and our fixation with ourselves to the one who made us the way we are. God tells us plainly in his word that he has important things for us to do that he expects for us to do, things that you and I will only be able to do when we are living out of the identity of who uh, God has made us to be, not the least of which is to change the world, really. And that's why we've been looking at the book of Deuteronomy for, lo these many weeks. You want to know how many? Can I tell you? 24. 24 weeks. We've been on the book of Deuteronomy, and we're just on chapter 7. But we've watched, we've watched God prepare His people to lead His people into the promised land, the land that He said He would give them. And we know that God has led us to a land, that God has given us a place to be. We've listened to what God wants His people to do when they enter the land that He has given them. And we know God has given us things to do in this land in which He has placed us. Things, again, that we'll only be able to do if we live out of the identity He has given us and the power that He has given to us. And so if we'll listen to the truth of God's word about who we are and what he has made us to be, then the only question left for us to answer is, what can we not do? What can we not do? Let's look at some of our identity, one by one, that we've looked at this morning. First, God says that you are a people holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. Holy means treated with respect. It means removed. From profane use, it means set apart for special use. I used to have this piece of blue-green glass that I kept on my desk years and years ago. I found this piece of glass when I was plowing in the garden. This piece of glass was caked with dirt, caked with mud, but a little bit of the mud fell off, and some glass was exposed, and the sun caught that piece of glass, and I saw it. So I reached down and I I picked it up. I knocked off, off all the clumps of dirt and I took it into the house and I washed it. And the color was beautiful. And the glass was worn down from being buried so many years and so it was smooth and it pleased me. And so I put it on my desk just so I could look at it. God picks his people up out of the dirt out of the mud of a sinful and profane world. You and I were caked with the sin of it, but God cleans us up and sets us aside because it pleases him to do so. What kind of God must he be if he would do something like that for us? I don't know about you, But I would rather spend my time wondering about that, pondering, meditating. What kind of God would do such a thing, rather than thinking about myself? Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Christ gave his life to make us holy, clean. To set us aside for special use. That's why we talk about being washed in the blood. The blood washing away our sin. It took the life blood of Jesus to wash that sin away and to make us holy. But that's what he wanted to do with his life. He had one life to spend one way and that's how he chose to spend it. Giving it for you and me. It pleased him to do it. It pleased Jesus to do that so that you and I might be trophies of His grace to put on display. There's no need to be bashful about it. To hang our head, to kick our toe in the dirt. Oh, shucks, little old me. You know what? As long as we're doing that, we are still the focus. Poor little you. No. The focus is on Christ and who He is and what He has done for us. When Jesus paid such a great fortune, a great fortune to purchase us, why should He not display us and say, look, What my life bought. Look at these trophies of grace. It was worth it. You know, there is too often among good Presbyterians. You know what I feel I can say? I can say this now because I've been Presbyterian for 50 years. And so not many of you can top that. It's called worm theology. We focus on our sin. We focus on our depravity. And one of the most quoted phrases, at least in my experience, among Presbyterians is this. already said it once this morning. Well, we sin daily in thought, word, and deed. We sin daily in thought, word, and deed. We sin daily in thought, word, and deed. And you know what? That is absolutely the truth. We sin daily in thought, word, and deed. And perhaps we focus on that to make sure that we know and to make sure that everybody else knows that we know that our salvation is, is in Christ alone. And that is true. Our salvation from beginning and end is in Christ alone, but it is salvation in Christ alone. That's what it is. He saved us. He's given us new life. He's given us His Spirit. And he's given us His Word to walk in newness of life. How will we overcome the Gollum effect If all we ever want to talk about is how depraved and how sinful we are, how will we accomplish the beautiful things that God has for us if our focus is always on our unworthiness and our sinfulness? How will we ever have anything but a defeatist attitude? Back to Ephesians 5, 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant bride, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Our holiness, yours and mine, it doesn't come from within us. It comes from the Lord, from the life that he has given to us, from the word that he has given to us. Our salvation, yours and mine, is an accomplished fact. When we place our faith in Christ for salvation, we are in that moment justified. We are made right before God. But our sanctification, that is an ongoing process. Whereby you and I, more and more, we die to sin and we live to Christ. The focus is on life. That's what God has given to us. Life. We have it through faith in Christ. We experience that life in its fullness. When the word of God washes over us. When we just stand under the truth of the word of God and let it pour over us. It washes away the sin. It shows us what you and I must do to live a holy life. And that's why, as God speaks through Moses here on the plains of Moab, preparing his people to enter the promised land, verse 11 we read this morning, Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. Living by the word of God makes us the holy people that God has called us to be in this land where he's placed us. You are holy. He's washed you. He is washing you. He has set you apart. He doesn't intend for you and me to ever be caked with sin, uh, with the dirt of sin. And that's why God gives his people commands like the one in verse 5. We read this last week. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones cut down their Asherah poles, burn their idols with fire. That's why God says, make no treaty with them, these people that li- are living in the land to which they are headed. Do not intermarry with them, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. See, this is God's protection over his people to keep them healthy spiritually, to keep them holy because He has important work for His people to do, the world is going to be changed through them. The nations of the world are going to be blessed through them, but not if they are living in and buried in and caked with the muck and the mire of the world. Only as they live out their identity, set apart and holy to God. Listen, if it was discovered tomorrow that there was a super virus that would kill children ages 12 and under in in two days. And that super virus was being transmitted through water. And officials said, don't drink the water. How many of you would let your children drink the water? Anybody? If it was discovered that there was a chemical in a spray pesticide that caused brain damage in children, how many of you would use that spray to kill roaches? Oh, excuse me. Palmetto bugs. (laughs) And what would you think of a parent that filled up a glass of water and gave it to their child and said, drink this while they started spraying the pesticide? You would be angry. You'd be angry at that parent. You would report them to DSS. You would think that they were unfit to be parents. You would want to take their children away from them. Even though we can't see the harmful effects of the chemicals, even though we can't see the virus, we know they're there. And so we protect our children from what can't be seen. God. Our Father protects us from what we can't see. We look at something and say, Ah, well, that looks fun to me. Come on, what harm can come from that? Loosen up, relax, live a little. It's no big deal. Yeah, but God sees what we don't see. God sees the beginning of our choices and He sees the end of them. And God has set us apart. He's made us holy. That's your identity and that's mine. And that's what God is protecting, our holiness. And that's why God says here, eliminate the virus. We're holy to God, set apart into him, and he shows us what you and I must do to live in that holiness. What might he accomplish in us and through us? If every morning when we got out of bed, we reminded ourselves, I am holy by the power of God, set apart for the purposes of God. We still have to live right in the midst of this place, this city, the neighborhood, where God has placed us. And we live there, not as superior, not as aloof, not as better than anybody, but set apart for God and for his use. Perhaps God tells us who we are so that we live up to his expectation. Secondly, if you look in verse 6, We see another part of our identity. It says that God has chosen you, chosen you out of all peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasure possession. You and I are chosen by God. Now the Presbyterians are getting excited. (laughs) Yay, we're talking about predestination. Well, not so much. I, I will never forget. I'll never forget the look on Susan Belcher's face as she took center court at halftime of the homecoming game, 1981. Susan and I were neighbors. We grew up together. We went to church together, though we went to different high schools. Well, Susan was nominated to be homecoming queen at her high school. But she told me that she didn't know whether to be excited about the nomination or not because Susan knew that she was not exactly a beauty queen. And Susan knew that she was a a lot bigger than your typical uh, homecoming queen. And so she told me she wasn't sure why she'd been nominated. Was it a joke? But she bought a dress, and she took her place with all the girls on the court at halftime. And though she would never be chosen homecoming queen, she had the chance to dress up and stand there with the other beautiful girls. Well, right beside Susan stood Barbara, the stunningly beautiful girl who had been homecoming attendant every year since seventh grade. Every year, Barbara was it. And so there was no real sense of anticipation in the air that night. We all knew Barbara would win because Barbara always won. Well, then it came time to announce the senior attendant. Senior attendant, homecoming, 1981, Barbara. Everybody was shocked. If Barbara was just going to be the senior attendant, who in the world was going to be homecoming queen? And suddenly there was a little bit of excitement in the air. Finally, the announcement came. Homecoming queen, 1981, Susan Belcher. And the whole gym erupted in applause. And Susan couldn't move. She was too shocked, too stunned. She stood there the other nominees had to take her and lead her to the center of the court where she would be crowned homecoming queen. Amazing. Being homecoming queen didn't make Susan proud or arrogant. She was humble about it. And she mostly laughed about it because she considered herself to be the most unlikely homecoming queen ever. And I think that we might Be beginning to understand what God has done for us if we could throw back our heads and laugh at the thought of our salvation because it's so ridiculous. It's funny. Lord, you've got to be kidding me. You want me? Now, it doesn't count if you throw your head back and laugh about somebody else's salvation. That doesn't work. (laughs) And we could do that, and you know we could do that. No. We laugh about our own salvation. It it, it seems so ridiculous to us. It's beyond the pale of possibility that God would have chosen us. And you know what? If you can't throw your head back and laugh about your salvation, then you might not get it. You might be like the person who doesn't get the joke. You look around and everybody else is throwing their head back and saying, Lord, are you kidding? You saved me. And you're saying, well, of course you saved me, you know? How how many of us? Well, of course, Lord, you would pick someone like me. God makes it clear to His people that He chose them not because of anything they had to offer Him in exchange, not because they said, "Lord, here, if you will choose us, we will give you this thing." And the Lord thought, "Well, that seems like a pretty good deal to me. Okay, I'll pick you." That's not how it happened. God chose these people because He loved them. Look in verse seven. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. If God were looking for a great people or a powerful people or an influential people in exchange for his love, the people of Israel would have been God's last choice. They had nothing to offer God, but he chose them anyway. He chose them to be his treasured possessions. And that word treasure is used in other places to refer to a king's private fortune. The private fortune of a king. That's how God sees his people. That's their identity. And it's so important to God that his people know their identity. That he tells them over and over. And you just sit back because i want to demonstrate this. If God thinks it's important enough to repeat, I, I, I think we ought to hear it. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Now, if you fully obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. See, God wants these words spoken to his people. You are my treasured possession, a people holy to me. Tell them. Deuteronomy 14, 1. You are the children of the Lord your God. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Deuteronomy twenty-six, eighteen, And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. Let's go to the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Oh, there's more. Titus 2.14. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. That's our identity. God says so. And we got to follow that very quickly and very immediately with verses like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Or Titus 3.3. 3. Once we, you and me, once we were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy. We hated each other, but when God our Savior revealed His kindness and love, He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4. 4. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us and the one he loves. And, and one more. This is Second Timothy 1.9. God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Is that not amazing? Amazing, you heard the truth from the Word of God. And so how do we explain How do we express all the thoughts and the emotions that that we have and that we should feel when we know that we are chosen especially, and especially when we know that we really don't deserve it? Theologically, philosophically, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that God would be this way, that God would do these things. We can't understand it. And that's why Scripture calls it a mystery. Scripture says Christ is a mystery. Scripture says that the gospel is a mystery. Scripture says that Christ living in us is a mystery. Hymns sing about it. The mystery of the cross we sang this morning. I cannot understand. It is mercy all immense and free that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. We can't know why. We can only experience it through God's faithfulness to us through His provision for us, and through His transformation of us. You and I, we know what we were. We know what we were. We know what we are now in Christ. We know what we are becoming. We know where we're going. We know what we're inheriting. Why should it be? Only God knows. The bigger mystery to me is then why we, as Presbyterians, some of us, are called the frozen chosen. <laughs> and that's from PCA preacher, he knows. <laughs> How could it be? Frozen, chosen. It can't be true. Can't be true. Not of a people who know their identity. In us there should be a visible shock and amazement just as visible as Susan when she was chosen as homecoming queen. There should be in us disbelieving laughter. There should be in us a determination to live a life of holiness. There should be in us a desire to actively figure out, Lord, to what purpose Have you set me apart? We should be asking, why, Lord, have you told me who I am? What effect, Lord, do you want that to have on me? What difference, Lord, should it make in the way I live my life? What do you want me to accomplish, Lord, with you and through you right here, right now, in this time and in this place? Let's pray. Father, I ask now that you would reveal the answer to those questions to each of us. Lord, so many of the the answers we have in common. Why you've saved us, why you've set it apart, it's, it's of your grace. But Lord, we are individuals before you as well, and You have things for us to do as individuals. You have things for us to do as a church. And we're only going to do that, Lord, when we focus on uh, our identity in Christ. But I pray that you would help us be less self-centered. It's hard in this world. It's hard in this culture. So many messages come at us every day, telling us how important we are, telling us how important it is that we please ourselves and have what we want, we deserve it, it's rightfully ours, and so it's a culture of self, and I pray that you would release us from that, or that we would even stop thinking about ourselves, that we would take the truth of your word, who you proclaim us to be, and that we would move on from that to better things, to the bigger things that you have for us to do eternally significant things, world-changing things. Help us get beyond ourselves and onto you and who you are and what you expect from us. Do this through the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.